the backdrop to any conversation about taxes or how to pass laws that will shape our economy is how that economy is doing in the first place. And right now, hey, pretty good. 228,000 jobs added in November, unemployment at 4.1%, and most importantly, wages are going up. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And so that's a rough snapshot of the economy. Where it meets your real life? Well, that often depends on what Washington is up to. And so we start with taxes and you. I mean, this is the Marketplace sweet spot. The House and Senate tax bills have now been released. The Senate bill passed last Saturday in the wee hours of the morning. And now we all have questions because a tax overhaul impacts pretty much everything. So this week, we asked you for your most pressing questions on taxes and the plans the House and the Senate now have to reconcile. If Congress is, you know, going to enact any major tax legislation this year. We put together a panel of experts to answer your questions. Mark Nash, a tax partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Michael Simkovic, a professor at USC's Gould School of Law. And Jill Schlesinger, a certified financial planner, CBS business analyst, and the host of Jill on Money. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Thank you. So, Michael, let's start with you. We got a question from a listener who wrote us about the income he earns as a landlord. I want to play that one. Go ahead. This is Doug Culver in Las Vegas. I have a couple of small fourplex apartment buildings, and I'm wondering how the tax bill affects that small business. For instance, mortgage interest on the building. Will that still be deductible? And how about property taxes on the buildings? Will they still be deductible? And does it make sense to set myself up as a pass-through entity? Okay. Um, Michael, what would you say to Doug? Right. So there's some good news for Doug. Um, Mortgage interest is going to continue to be deductible. There is a limitation on business interest, but it only applies for businesses that have between more than 25 million or more than 15 million. 25 million is the House version and Mm. 15 million is the Senate version in adjusted income. So if he only has a, a few small fourplexes, he probably would fall beneath that threshold okay. and would not have his ability to deduct business interest be limited. There's also a cap on the property tax deduction, but that only applies to individual homeowners, not to people who own a property and rent it out as a business. So he would also get to keep the property tax deduction there. As far as setting himself up as a pass-through business, he might want to do that. There's a, a cap on on the, the pass-through tax rate, which could be attractive. But then again, corporate tax rates are also going down dramatically. So it, it's not clear as a general rule that right. he would necessarily be, be better off with one than the other. And he might want to consult a, an advisor about that. I mean, I suspect that something we may hear from all of you is there are different versions in the House and the Senate bills. And a lot of this is going to shake out as we move toward one sort of unified bill. Jill, I want to put this question to you. This is from listener Rebecca Mettler. Has the health insurance mandate been removed, she asks. Basically, can I stop paying $1,400 a month for health insurance? And a follow-on question, would it be wise to fully fund my HSA before December 31st, 2017, perhaps let go of the super expensive health insurance? Would the HSA funding in 2017 be a tax deduction? Man, this is like a triple-barreled question to you, Jill. I'm ready. I've I've eaten my Wheaties. Um, So (laughs) here's the deal. The Good news and bad news is maybe. The Senate bill actually um, will repeal the individual mandate. The House bill kept it. I think it's going to hew towards the Senate version, but who knows? Again, we don't know. But if the Senate bill were to be repealed, then 
you know, I, I feel like I have to be like your Jewish mother and say, like, do you really need to not have insurance? Not having health insurance is a huge risk in your financial life. That said, regarding the follow-on question, yeah, I think it would be great to fund an HSA for lots of different other reasons. The HSA, the health savings account, remains a, um, a, a tax-preferenced and really good way to save for unreimbursed medical and health expenses. But, you know, usually it's paired with a high-deductible health insurance plan. So I guess number one on the, the list would be, gosh, I really want you to have health insurance. So, <laughs> dear, dear, could you please do that? The follow-up question, if you're not going to do that, maybe yes, fund the HSA. And yes, the HSA should remain a tax preference item. All right, Mark, I'm flipping you this next question. Uh, we had quite a few listeners write in who wanted to know what changes, if any, there are to the capital gains tax rates. What do they need to know? Sure. Well, um, there were a number of changes to tax rates in general, but no proposed change to the capital gain rates. So they will remain subject to a maximum tax rate of 20%. Uh, for individuals plus the 3.8% net investment income tax or Obamacare tax, uh, as it's sometimes referred to. So a top rate of 23.8% on capital gains uh, remains in effect. That's the same this year, and it's not proposed to change under either of the two bills. All right. Uh, we've got one about education. This is from listener Ken Merrill, who wrote to us about his son, he applied to a Ph.D. program and would get $35,000 and be taxed on $85,000 under the new plan. Ken wants to know how to reconcile that with the idea that this plan is about growth and opportunity. Michael, what would you say to that? I'd say it's, it's very problematic. Um, both the House and the Senate version include a number of provisions which specifically target college and graduate students and also universities and colleges generally. The particular provision that the question is about is only in the House version. It's not yeah, in the Senate yeah. version. But graduate students would be taxed on the value of the tuition that they do not have to pay. There are many studies by economists which have found that investment in higher education is very important to economic growth. Um, it's very important to innovation. It's important to boosting wages and boosting employment. And the rate of return on that is typically – uh, for higher education, somewhere in the 10 to 20% range, which yeah. is actually higher than the stock market, higher than private investment, which tells me that we're underinvesting in education and should be putting more money into that if we wanted to maximize economic growth. Um, so I think that that's an aspect of the bill which would tend to undermine economic growth. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend. We are talking taxes and all the twists and turns in these bills with Mark Nash, Michael Simkovic, and Jill Schlesinger. Jill, a few of our listeners wrote to us with questions about their small businesses. Uh, what deductions are small business owners gaining and, and losing under the proposed plans so far? <laughs> Good question. Uh, I mean, come on, throw them all out there. Yeah. I, well, I mean, here's the problem. There, there is a lot of consternation around this thing called pass-through entities, right? So if you're a sole proprietor, you've got a partnership, a limited liability company, an S-corp, what you do right now is you pay tax on your net income and you do it at your ordinary income tax rate, right? So it's just pretty easy and it, it is what it sounds like. It, the, the income passes through the organization, comes to you, and then you pay the tax. Now, so here's the, here's the weird part. The House bill has this wacko formula, which is so nutty. 
30% of your net income would be called business income, subject to a maximum uh, tax rate of 25%, the balance subject to whatever your personal income tax rate. So the Senate bill does it slightly differently. They look at your pass-through rate and they say, okay, we're going to give you a 23% deduction on your pass-through income. However, there's a huge caveat. It really excludes most professional services firms, like you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you're an architect. The outcome for self-employed people is yet to be resolved. It's incredibly complicated. And I think that what's likely to really happen is if you are a high earner and you are self-employed, you better get yourself a fabulous CPA. And now I toss, toss it to my CPA. Is that right? <laughs> you guys want to agree or disagree? Totally agree. This is, this is Mark Nash. It's certainly not going to be simplification for the self-employed individual uh, that has to do these things. Great simplification provisions for those who will be filing and taking the standard deduction. But for those who are having to deal with all these calculations that Jill was just talking about, uh, very complicated. And you need somebody that understands these rules. Well, I've got a question, Mark, for you. Uh, Amy Griffin sent us this question. A lot of artists slash freelancers are freaking out because word is going around that the tax plan ends unreimbursed employee expenses. I assume, she says, this is like union dues that your employer doesn't cover. What does it do to Schedule C expenses, though? Uh, Mark, can you touch on this? I have to admit, Amy's question is actually a little beyond me. I'm a, I'm a macro girl. <laughs> so, sure. Happy to uh, to address that. So uh, it is true that both bills would uh, repeal the deduction for unreimbursed employee expenses. So those things that you uh, pay out of your own pocket as an employee of another employer uh, and try to deduct those on your taxes, they right now are miscellaneous itemized deductions, and those are going to be curbed under the, the tax reform proposals. However, for a Schedule C, which is what most people would be if they are a freelancer or are self-employed, uh, those deductions would be deductible on a Schedule C, and those deductions will remain deductible or those expenses will remain deductible for self-employed individuals. So not as big of a hit for those people that are deducting them related to a trade or business that they are carrying on um, less so for those who are trying to deduct them if you're an employee of another. Let me ask you all this uh, as I let you go. What do you think right now, listeners who've been listening to this and maybe are concerned, confused, excited, whatever, is there something, some piece of advice that each of you would leave them with? If your goal is to try to figure out how this is going to affect you personally and what you should do, I would wait to see how it all ends up coming out because the bill is changing very quickly. There are differences between the House and the Senate version. You'll do kind of a lot of work chasing your tail following all of the changes and trying to guess how it comes out. Uh, I'll, I'll jump in here. Um, be patient. No sudden moves. Objects may have shifted during flight. You may <laughs> have to do something in the week between Christmas and New Year's, you will have some time to make decisions, but no sudden moves till we have an actual reconciled bill. Yeah, I think that that is, is certainly true. Prepare to move, but not necessarily make any moves to the extent that you can, you can be doing that. Well, Mark Nash, Michael Simkovic, and Jill Schlesinger, thank you all so much for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. 
And you can find answers to more questions we couldn't get to in this segment at Marketplace.org. And keep those questions coming. Just email us. We're weekend at Marketplace.org. As a nonprofit news organization, Marketplace is on a mission that goes beyond what we do each day to increase economic intelligence across the country. It's important work that we're already doing, and right now would be a great time for you to help. When you donate to support Marketplace today, your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by our friends at the Candida Fund. Giving not only supports independent reporting and journalism that you can trust, your support helps us grow and get better. So don't miss out on this chance to make your donation go twice as far. Give today at Marketplace.org. And thank you. Now a story about supply and demand, two of the most basic economic concepts. It's also a story about dogs. And it starts with mine, a wiggly, seal-colored mutt named Mara, who originally came from Vidalia, Georgia. She was pulled from a county shelter with mange, a bloody face, very little fur. Local volunteers worked with a group where I live in Brooklyn, New York, to move her north, where I adopted her. And Mara is not alone. An entire industry has sprung up, moving a supply of adoptable dogs from the rural south to cities in the north where there's a demand for them. To figure out why, my producer and I split up, and I went to rural Marion, North Carolina, to the supply. Come on in. All right. That's where I met Joy Harkelroad. She's got a shy smile and a blue minivan with a Who Rescued Who sticker on the back. I actually got a call while I was in church. About what she's cradling in her arms, wrapped in a towel. A little weak old puppy that was thrown away in a trash bag with her six siblings. Harkle Road sits with her friend Susan Menard in Menard's kitchen while three dogs run around at our feet and the puppy, whose eyes are still closed, sucks on my thumb. She constantly gets calls from sheriff's deputies, the trash guy, and an informal network of people who know she rescues dogs. So much so that Menard teases her. When's the last time you had a vacation? Um, last time you went somewhere overnight, anywhere. Many, many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the reason why is that so many dogs need homes. I asked her why she thinks that is. Because there's no spay-neuter law, no leash law. And um, we, we've tried for years to get one. But every time we try, we get stopped. And it's usually by the hunters. You know, and they stop. They don't want any of these things instituted and, you know... The county commissioners are, you know, they're not, they're not in agreement that we need a spay-neuter law. So I went to see Ashley Wooten. He's the McDowell County manager. And he says when the idea of a spay-and-neuter law comes up, yeah, hunters don't like it. And the North Carolina Sporting Dog Association told us they don't. Wooten says other people think it's government overreach, but also it's expensive. When you have the poverty level that we do in a working-class community like we do, uh, it's harder for folks to say, okay, I'm going to go out and spend $300 for this whatever procedure that my dog needs or my cat or to spend $150 on a spay and neuter. Instead, they've focused on education, low-cost vet services, and bringing the euthanasia rate down at the county shelter. That also means that in McDowell County and across North Carolina, there's an entire network of people like Joy Harkelroot. 
At Rusty's Legacy, a volunteer rescue not too far away, there are 32 dogs in kennels. Some will live out their lives here, like Marshall, who was found hogtied in the woods. But I'm here to meet the dogs going north. I'm picking up animals that are going to Connecticut Humane Society to find their forever homes. Kelly Brown from yet another rescue group, Brother Wolf, loads four cream and white hound puppies, plus one brindle, into crates while Vicki Harper says goodbye. You have a new exciting life. Yes, you do. And I then follow Brown and these little ones, all of whom have names that start with Z, to the Brother Wolf building in Asheville, where they get a vet check and some shots. And he's a boy. Say, I'm a little more dramatic than the girls. Aww. He's fine, really. Brother Wolf started transporting dogs north roughly a decade ago. This year, they've moved more than 650 dogs. And it costs about $200 per dog just to get them medically ready. That's before their crates are even put in the van. One more crate, one more dog. We'll be all set. From here, we'll drive an hour and a half to Taylorsville, North Carolina, to meet Kelly Ivory. Yeah, there are a lot of Kellys in this story. Ivory has made a business out of transporting dogs. Hi, everybody. In Taylorsville, she collects the dogs from rescue groups all across the state and loads them into her van for a 13-hour trip to that new life in Connecticut. (laughs) We're going to be driving, and while one's driving, the other one's going to be sleeping, and... There's any messes in the back? Whoever's not driving is cleaning it up as it happens. My name is Kelly Ivory, and I run Howl on Wheels Transport. It is a transport for rescue dogs. Um, an average week for me could be 5,200 miles on a road with a load full of dogs. I was running a humane society, and I seen the need to get some of these dogs out of this area. So I went ahead and got a van and decided that this is what I need to do. So here it is, an hour into the trip. We just stopped. We needed to grab something to drink. We've had some dogs that just didn't settle down at this point. We've had to clean a few crates, but we are ongoing. Live deer. Arms on or vertical. There's, there's not a lot of money making in transporting when you're looking at all the expenses you're putting out just to keep the vans on the road. Usually the receiving rescues will pay me. I usually say, okay, it's going to be a dollar per mile. This one's about a $1,600 run, um, and it's based off of the fuel, the payroll, the amount of maintenance. I mean, I'm averaging anywhere from eight to $1,600 a month just in maintenance. I make ends meet, but that's pretty much it. Okay, it is 1 a.m. in the morning. We have just stopped. We just got some fuel. Uh, I'm going to use the restroom, grab some snacks, clean any crates that need to be cleaned. Hi, baby. Who's a big baby? Look at you. Oh, yes, you did a mess in there. Hold on. You're soaked, girly. You're soaked. We have scheduled stops, so we, we will stop, we will walk a dog, we will clean up their kennels. So by the time that we arrive up in the north, you can open up that door and you don't typically smell anything. So here it is, 6.30 a.m. We're getting ready to cross over the Tappan Zee Bridge. We're hoping to get to the Connecticut Humane Society in time. 
I've been doing this in business for almost five years. There's definitely some competition out there. I've seen a huge increase on the amount of transporters that have opened businesses, especially the last couple of years. A lot of these dogs don't deserve what they've been dished out. If I can be that that leg of transportation up to the north to help, then I'm going to do it. And when the dogs arrive, well, it's not quite over. Marketplace's Peter Balanon-Rosen picks up our story. He went to Newington, Connecticut to follow the dog's journey and explore why there's northern demand for southern dogs in the first place. Yep, this is a story of supply and demand after all. So before we get back to the puppies, let's talk about that. To walk us through, meet Gordon Willard. I'm the executive director here at the Connecticut Humane Society. Where the dogs from North Carolina have just arrived. Willard's been in this biz since 1983. Back then, across the Northeast... We were dealing with uh, surplus animals. We had oversupply and under-demand. Back then, the Connecticut Humane Society processed over 40,000 local animals each year. But then, in the mid-90s, something changed. All of a sudden, fewer homeless dogs. Which meant spaying and neutering was working. New rules across New England made owners sterilize their pets. But just as fewer dogs got to shelters... Demand for them shot up. Why? Well, a few reasons. One, spay-neuter rules meant fewer people adopting out unwanted litters. Two, it also meant fewer strays. And three, purebred dogs and their puppy mill associations were not so cool anymore. And the word rescue took on a different connotation. Then Hurricane Katrina hit. In 2005, Northeast Humane Groups pooled resources to transport dogs from New Orleans. It showed them, whoa, we can bring dogs from other places, disaster or no. And by 2016, Connecticut organizations were bringing up about 20,000 animals a year from out of state. Today, about one in every 10 comes here to the Connecticut Humane Society. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Staff and volunteers get ready putting on bright blue scrubs. I suit up, too. Yeah, get our gloves on, and then we'll start taking dogs off as soon as the vet comes. As soon as the vet comes. There's a whole process to this. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has 23 pages of regulations for how to handle and transport dogs. Inside the van, dogs wait. The unloading process, it's a choreography, one dog at a time. I meet this little rat terrier. She's white with pointy black ears, and her name's Abby. She's terrified, pees herself as volunteer Steve Wilbert picks her up. They clean that up and take Abby for a walk. Little by little, you see the transformation. Abby goes from trembling to sniffing around the lawn. She even jumps at a tree. That's my girl. You ready to go in and take a look at the vet? Let's go. Let's turn her around, and we're going to just look at her knees and look at her skin. Vet Kaylin Machevsky examines every dog. She sees a strange spot on Abby. Machevsky examines her fur with a black light, looking for any bacteria or fungus. So anything weird will glow a green. She looks good. She does. Let's go, Abs. Abby heads to an area where transport dogs stay for 48 hours before joining other dogs up for adoption. Now, with all of this, there are costs. The medical exams down south, the transport, and this processing. Connecticut Humane Society foots the bill for all of it, and it adds up. Again, Director Gordon Willard. In economic terms, this is the most horrible business 
plan you could ever create. But in mission terms and in humane terms, this is exactly what our donors ask us to do. Can you put a dollar figure to how much you spend on each dog? About a net figure, we're looking about $900 subsidy per animal adopted. Adoption fees range from $100 for older dogs to $445 for puppies. Willard says the shelter stays open because of their donors, not money from adoptions. I popped down to the adoption area. It's loud. Irving Cologne came by with a friend. I'm thinking of getting a, a dog now that I just moved into the area. I know a lot of the a lot of the animals they have here are rescues that are either from the area or from elsewhere. Is that something that that's on your mind? They should all get a chance. Uh, I'm not too picky on on their background and stuff like that. Staff say most of the transport dogs will be adopted out within the week, and they say when the year's through, like every year, they'll crunch the numbers, go through their books, and see if transport is something they plan to continue. I'm Peter Balanon Rosen for Marketplace. This story was produced in partnership with Topic, a film, television, and digital studio. You can find a link to Topic's beautiful images for this story and their very cute subjects. Just go to marketplace.org. younger, I wanted to be a paleontologist. We all have our dreams, becoming a doctor, vet, ice cream flavor developer. But how do you get to work in a certain profession anyway? We are taking a look with our occasional series, How to Be a Blank. And we're starting off with a popular one. My name is Doug Wheelock. Right now I'm a NASA astronaut and I'm sitting in Houston, Texas at the Johnson Space Center. I've flown in space twice once on the Space Shuttle Discovery, and then I lived in space for six months in 2010 as the commander of the International Space Station. So what we look for in uh, folks that want to become an astronaut or work at NASA is we look for people who are interested in the STEM fields. So that's science, technology, engineering, and math. And so we encourage everyone to find a particular area in those courses of study that they really enjoy develop a passion for it, be curious about the world around you, and be curious and always ask questions. We do have some height qualifications. I think it's 62 inches to 76 inches, so that's 5'2 to 6'4. And that's only so you can fit in our spacesuits and so you can fit in the spaceships as well. Also, to be physically active and healthy is a requirement because the The body goes through a lot of stress when you go to space, and so we need folks with a strong um, sense of um, hand-to-eye coordination and physically able to do more difficult manual work. And with the vision, as long as your vision is correctable to 2020, it's no problem if you wear glasses. We normally pick our astronauts when they're about mid-30s, Anywhere from 30 to 38 usually is kind of the average age of a person being selected as an astronaut. So when I meet with students, say, in high school or even just in coming through college, my first advice to them is just relax. You've got plenty of time. And I encourage uh, students of all ages to have a plan, of course. 
an advanced degree in science and technology, engineering and math, are highly desirable. So if you can work toward a master's degree and even a PhD, we love to see that in our astronauts. But even more importantly, be able to work in an operational environment, to have some work experience as well, where you use your schooling in decision-making, in problem-solving, and things like that. But to not make being an astronaut your end-all and be-all goal. Because in the process, you know, the selection is so stringent, you want to be able to be enjoying what you're doing as well. If you don't make it into the astronaut corps, at least you have a cool job that you love. Once you get here, when someone's selected as an astronaut, for the first two years, they're actually focused 100% on training. Our astronauts are learning about the systems on the space station, but also about our new rockets. Our astronauts are learning Russian, and some of them flying on a Russian Soyuz up to the space station. And we have new vehicles that are coming. You may have heard about SpaceX and Boeing. They're building vehicles, rockets that are going to launch from Florida. It's really pretty fun uh, training to be an astronaut. Was, I've been an astronaut now for 19 years. I still feel like a young kid just walking in the front door here. That was Doug Wheelock, an astronaut at NASA. Ever wondered about a certain job? Well, get in touch. We're weekend at marketplace.org. Hit us up on Twitter. We're at Marketplace WKND. And hey, if you're listening via podcast, leave us a review. It helps other people find us. As a team, we have been out on the road reporting a lot over the past few weeks, which means we haven't had that much time to read all of your comments. So we're going back to Thanksgiving and a piece we aired on the business of comic shops. The key moments in this in this run-up toward the crash, uh, one was the death of Superman. People hadn't seen something like that before, where it was, you know, supposedly this permanent change, and it sold out instantly. It sold out almost everywhere the day it came out. And what that did for retailers and for buyers is it taught them, my goodness, the next big thing, I need to make sure I get it. Scott Satter and I reached out on Facebook. He wrote, I owned a comic shop from 1984 to 1995. And although I never catered to the collector's crowd, a lot of this rang true. The chase for the next hot comic gold mine infected the publishers. They stopped crafting good stories and concentrated on manufacturing collectibles. As a result, many shops like mine died when the readers got turned off and left. We also heard from Megan Feth after she heard our last Ask a Manager segment with Allison Green. Now that holiday season has arrived, what's the workplace etiquette for holiday cards? I'm a person that sends over 250 holiday cards a year. Yes, I'm a little extreme. Should I ask my office manager for a list of home addresses for my coworkers for the cards to be mailed, in which I'm in favor? Should I personally ask the coworker for the address, or should I just leave the cards on their desks? Megan, Allison's going to be back next week, and we're going to have her answer your question. And if you have questions for Allison, or you want to comment on anything you hear on the show, you can email us. We're weekend at marketplace.org, or tweet us. We're at Marketplace WKND. There are two things we really like on this show. Well, okay, not counting dogs. Food and numbers. 
So it makes sense to mix the two. For this week's news, by the numbers, with Marketplace's Tony Wagner and Sarah Menendez. Tony, kick it off. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... 500,000. That's how many bars of Mountain Peak-inspired British chocolate discount brand Poundland will be able to sell before it changes the candy's shape. Poundland has been locked in a legal battle with Toblerone, which argues that the cheaper British chocolate stole its signature shape. Toblerone is modeled after the Swiss Matterhorn Mountain, while the Poundland Twin Peak candy is modeled after two hills in Wales. After the first half a million candy bars are sold out, they'll reshape their chocolate mountain. Five. That's the number of Hello Kitty-themed wines being released for the holidays. Prices start at $29.50 for white and up to about $40 for a special edition rosé. Sanrio, which owns the Hello Kitty empire, has been making the wines with an Italian winery since 2007 and selling them internationally. This year, the wines are available in 10 U.S. states. 15. Sticking with the food and drink theme, on average, a new Starbucks opens in China every 15 hours. China has become the second largest and fastest growing market for the prolific coffee chain, and its new Shanghai Reserve Roastery is the largest location to date. There are 3,000 Starbucks in China, and about 500 more are expected to open this year. That's a lot of coffee. has been one of the worst years on record for natural disasters. California is in the middle of wildfires. Hurricanes caused more than $200 billion in damages. And whatever the disaster, there's a need for help, as we heard from Michelle Rodriguez. She runs a nonprofit for children just outside San Juan in Puerto Rico. She told us that ever since Hurricane Maria, the community needs more help than ever. Translation services, clean water, hot meals... We have been able to find some help for that. Uh, We established alliances, and thank God for that, because we have been receiving help to rebuild some ceilings, uh, specifically for families that cannot have any other help, or people that are sick or elderly people. But what's the right kind of help? This is where product philanthropy comes in. Howard Sherman is the CEO of Good360, a product philanthropy organization, and I asked him to explain what product philanthropy is. The concept of product philanthropy is pretty simple. The execution of it is complex. So Hmm. if you think about the hundreds and hundreds of of companies that sell product, whether they sell it online or through brick-and-mortar stores or both, and then there's a subset of product that um, falls in the category of excess product. And that might be return product or last year's fashions. And product philanthropy is simply the idea of donating that product rather than wasting that product um, to organizations and people in need. You know, there's this adage when a disaster recurs uh, for regular old citizens, don't send stuff, send money. Send money, right. money's faster, money's easier. You guys are kind of the opposite of that. Why can you deal with stuff when, you know, me sending T-shirts or diapers or whatever maybe isn't efficient? When there is an event, I think it's natural for people to want to help. 
Um, yeah. And people, uh, individuals tend to go into their closets or go to their local markets and source whatever they, they think is appropriate. And it's well-intended giving, but often, and in, in the sad statistic is that, you know, roughly 60% of all product contributions that are given for disaster end up in landfill or never being used. And the reason for that is it's not necessarily the right product delivered to the at the right time to the right people. You're also dealing with, obviously, in a disaster situation, very fragile infrastructure. So you have to think about warehousing. You have to think about distribution. So the complexity associated with the donation of products is is pretty um, pretty significant. And so you need an organization that understands how to manage that complexity. So it's not as simple as going to your grocery store, buying a bag of groceries, and putting it in the back of a pickup truck and hoping it gets to the right folks. Good 360's been in business for 30 years. How has the model changed as supply chains have changed, as the internet has become, you know, a thing we all now carry around in the palm of our hands? Yeah. So, you know, over the course of the history of our organization, we've redistributed um, over $9 billion worth of product to people in need. Um, You know, clearly as... uh, Businesses have evolved and the demands on businesses have evolved and and developing highly efficient supply chains is critical for business and also critical for the redistribution of goods. We've had to lean into much more sophisticated technology, much more sophisticated uh, supply chain operations, warehousing facilities, and the coordination of understanding what our now 60,000 nonprofit organization partners need with what our 400 Fortune 1000 companies have in their excess capacity inventory and provide an efficient way to move that product from one side of the value chain to the other side of the value chain. Is there a life cycle to this? I mean, it's been almost three months since Hurricane Hmm. Maria, and I guess I wonder what you see in terms of the partners who you work with on the corporate side. You know, do you get big response up front and then it kind of goes away? Yeah, that's exactly the dilemma. So, um, you know, the statistics suggest that, you know, roughly 80% of the giving, um, whether it's dollars or product, occurs in the first 60 days of an event. You know, yet we're still in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, from the floods that occurred in August of 2016. Um, We're still in Flint, Michigan. Um, Recovery cycles have a very very long tail. And it's not just about recovery. It's about thoughtful recovery and sustainable recovery. So if you're in a situation where you want to rebuild a community, um, you really want to think through how do you rebuild that community quickly, but also in a sustainable way, understanding that these events, um, you know, the idea of 100-year events (laughs) when they occur every three years, you really have to start to rethink what you know, what you're doing in terms of the recovery cycle as well as the nature of the recovery and the rebuild that you're trying to establish. Howard Sherman, CEO of Good360. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lizzie. You can learn more about product philanthropy and listen to our one-hour special on disaster recovery in Puerto Rico. Just go to our website, marketplace.org. And if you're listening to us via the podcast, leave the show a review. It helps other people find us.
the show, we answered your questions on the tax bills. 401k amendments are part of both the House and Senate tax proposals. But as we've reported on this show in the past, one-third of Americans have nothing set aside for retirement, which makes this story we're about to cover a little odd. It turns out millions of dollars are being left unclaimed in abandoned 401k accounts. For more on why people are doing this, I spoke with Charles Thorngren, the CEO of investment firm Noble Gold. It's not that they're just walking away from them. It's not like the the housing issue from years ago where they just said, I can't afford it, I'm walking away. It's really a matter of them changing jobs, moving positions in life, and not realizing it's there, not paying attention to it. The 401k plan was so easy to leave behind because you didn't actively put money into it. It was done for you. Kind of out of sight, out of mind. So this might be an issue of, you know, somebody's company is putting money in, they don't even realize it? It starts that way, yes. Um, a lot of companies nowadays match, so that, that money grows pretty well for you. But once you leave that company, they no longer have to keep you up to date with what's going on. They don't contribute anymore, and that money sits there. Well, so how much money are we talking about? It's hard to know exactly. The l- latest estimates were about $250 million sitting wow. there. About 33,000 401ks get abandoned every year. Well, if you think, wait a minute, you know, that job I had, oh, however many years ago, you know, if you think there's something in the back of your mind, what can you do to try and figure that out? A couple things you can do. The easiest way would be to actually call the old employer if you know how to get in touch with them. And they can get you through the human resources and, and figure out if you have a plan, where it's at, how to get back in touch with it. If they're not what you can do... You can call the Department of Labor or go to their website, and you can find information there on the the, uh, the bureaus that will help you find those old funds. Uh, you know, often when we talk about personal finance, uh, people have to be on the lookout for scams, things that sound like the FTC, for example, but aren't. Like, how do you know if you're following the right steps and not being taken for a ride by somebody? Ah, great question. If you do some of the homework yourself and you make that initial contact, you're going to be put in touch with one of the larger firms that handled 401ks. Fidelity, Prudential, Merrill Lynch, all the names we know. And from there, you can start the process. Now, where you go from there, that's where you have to start to look around and say, okay, what am I doing with this money? Am I leaving it in place? Am I just changing the asset allocation? Or am I going to move it to something it gives me more control over it, like a self-directed IRA. Uh, ballpark number, what are we talking about? I mean, is there some average amount of money that, you know, is is found in these lost 401ks? You know, they range uh, typically between anywhere between 10000 to 50000 um, There are that's... some that are larger, some that are a little smaller, but that's the median. That's nothing to sneeze at. Um, if anyone wants to give me their $50,000 plan that they have left <laughs> behind, I will more than happy help them with it. <laughs> are there moments that stick out in your mind, in your memory of recovered or remembered 401ks that really kind of blew you away? You know, there are a couple, but one particular, um, uh, a, uh, a lady called us and uh, needed help getting her um, her finances in order. And we found a pension plan that she had had that her husband had passed and uh, she was a beneficiary of it. It was a plan that was well over $300,000. And she Whoa. didn't even know it existed. Had no idea. That's a 
pretty life-changing amount of money, I would imagine. Absolutely. And, and it's, it, it was something that was worked hard for. You should benefit from it. You did the work. You put it away. You saved. It sure is much easier to spend that money than to make that conscious effort to put it away. Don't leave it captive. Put it to use. People might be listening to this and thinking, oh, I meant to do it, but it seemed expensive or, gee, it sounded really complicated. Uh, what, what should they know if they want to maybe roll some 401ks together? You know, it's not as tough as it seems. If there is financial jargon there. That's always intimidating. What you can do is search for a uh, financial advisor that comes well-recommended that you can trust and they can help you with that process if you don't feel comfortable doing it yourself. If you're one of those firecrackers, you can go out and find out where it's at, get it moved over yourself. It's really not that expensive to do it, okay? You may be looking at some, some uh, cancellation fees on a 401k. Depending on how much you have in there, you may be looking at anywhere from 200 to $500. But finding that captured money is well worth that cost. Charles Thorngren, CEO of the investment firm Noble Gold. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. If you have other questions on 401ks, check out our five things you need to know about retirement accounts. You can find it on our website, marketplace.org. It's time now for the Marketplace Quiz. That's when we ask people in the spotlight questions about work and money, and they tell us about the lessons they've learned along the way. Producer Haley Hirschman has this week's guest. She was my favorite character on Freaks and Geeks. We spoke with her for a special on graduating into the economy over the summer. Hi, I'm Linda Cardellini, and I'm an actress. Fill in the blank. Money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you... Big parties. Do you throw a lot of big parties? I, I, <laughs> I have. I have before. I have a giant family, so I like to throw big parties. What is the hardest part about your job that no one knows? Finding new ways to uh, field any kind of rejection. I think mm -hmm. you have to constantly be evolving your, your defenses without, without putting up a wall and still being vulnerable. I think that is a, it's sort of an evolving skill. Because, you know, not everybody's going to love everything that you do. So you have to sort of forge ahead mm -hmm. and at the same time let it roll off of you while still being vulnerable. That's a balancing act that I'm always trying to understand. What was it like when you were first starting out as an actress? It was hard, but I was resilient because I was determined that I would do it. And there's this part of you that, you know, I say like you have a little bit of a screw loose in order <laughs> to believe that you can fight against all those odds and do something that is, you know, relatively to me, it seemed impossible. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I thought somehow it would be possible. And you sort of start to you concentrate on the positive things that happen and you try to eliminate the negative ones as you go along. But that's not always easy. What is something you bought that you now completely regret buying? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a big, long list. <laughs> well, right now, I have a 10-foot uh, a table in my <laughs> front room that is taking up the, the majority of my front room. My friend's aunt was... They were getting rid of a lot of her things, and I thought, well, that's a beautiful table. Let's take that home. And it actually just served to collect 10 
feet worth of things that we should actually be putting away. What is your most prized possession? I have about eight place settings of this Depression-era milk glass that my grandmother collected going to the movie theater back in the day. And back in the day, when, as an incentive to get people to come out, they would give them gifts because, you know, so many companies were going under during that, that time. And so in the 20 and thir- 20s and 30s, they gave away this milk glass as you went to the movie theater. So I have eight place settings that my grandmother collected huh. going to the movie theater as a kid in San Francisco. To me, that's one of my, my most special things that I have because it reminds me of my grandmother and it also reminds me of her sort of struggling coming up and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and collecting. My grandmother kept everything perfectly. Is there any advice that you wish that you had received when you graduated college, whether it be about work or life, that you think these 2017 graduates should hear? You know, the world's really wide open. And whatever it is you studied or whatever it is that that you are passionate about, if it's not what you studied, that's okay. But find what it is that you love because life is too short and, and do what you love and do it passionately if you can. And uh, and that will take you further spiritually than, than anything. You can check out Linda Cardellini's answers and other past Marketplace quizzes. Just go to marketplace.org. Coming up on next week's show, Allison Green from Ask a Manager is back. This time, you know, what with it being holiday season and all, we talk holiday party etiquette. And keep sending your questions on what the tax bills mean for you. We'll get to as many of them as we can. You can email us, weekend at marketplace.org, or tweet us. We're at Marketplace WKND. And that is it for this Marketplace weekend. The show is produced by Peter Balanon Rosen and Eliza Mills. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer. Drew Jostad is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Norrin Rao. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.